respect of God. That is important for us to understand. You know, I think we live today in what I would say is a very dysfunctional religious setting. Somewhere along the way, the American mindset, the democratic processes that are in our head, have given us brain damage. Now, you do realize, historically, uh, democracy is somewhat of an experiment, and, and it doesn't represent the vast majority of many, many nations throughout history. So we find this great concept, and it's everybody gets a vote. Everybody gets a say-so. And, and we love this idea, and we want the whole world to embrace it. But somehow it, it's messed our brains up because we almost think that we can take that same idea and we can come to God with it now. And we can all sort of vote on who is God. Well, I think he's like this. Well, my vote counts too. And I think he's like this. And, and we live in a country that's defining who God is. God's not up for being defined. He already has a definition. He already is who he is. We don't vote on who he is. We just discover who he is. Right? Which is one of the reasons why we recommend great resources like this. How many of you guys have been reading Knowledge of the Holy? Excellent. This book's still available for you. We're gonna, you know, the next book of the month won't start for a couple more weeks. But this book starts in chapter 1 with, with this. I think we have this quote for you on the screen. One of my favorite quotes because it is probably one of the most foundational things about truly our, our lives. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has risen, have ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What, what do you conceive God to be like as you think about God this morning? I would say, what is God like? Tell me about God. And how many of us would list off characteristics of God? God is love. God is compassionate. God is merciful. God is forgiving. Um, <clears throat> How many of us would have said, God is terrifying? God scares me. God is an extinguisher and destroyer of evil. Would we have said that about God? Now, this morning we have a passage before us that is only explainable if we have a full picture of God. Let's look at John chapter 12. The verse we're going to look at begins in verse 27, and bits and pieces of it will take us to the end of the chapter. But really, before we even get to verse 27, remember last or two weeks ago, we talked about this passage and the grain of wheat. And the opportunity for this is that it's the last week of Jesus' life. We're a couple of days away from the crucifixion. 
And there's a pressing crowd that's come to find out about this Jesus, and they want to talk to him. And Jesus responds to them. This is, this is what's on his mind, and this is what he wants to clarify for anybody who's looking to meet him at the information booth about himself. In verse 23, he sets this time up. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now skip down in verse 27. He is talking about this hour when he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, all that thundering voice is a parenthesis. It's, it's a, it interrupts the flow of thought for a moment. Right here, it, we're, we're in this hour. This hour is now. With this hour as the backdrop, it's come. Now is my soul troubled. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. <clears throat> when Jesus talks about this hour, he's describing two things, and I'm not sure we love both of them. I'm not sure we love equally the message from two weeks ago about this sacrificial act of Christ laying his life down like a grain of wheat. So that what? So that there could be an incredible harvest. So that one life could turn into abundant life for us all. That's a very appealing moment in this hour. It is to me. But what's raised in this passage, this hour, something's about to occur. And in it, this hour is for the Father to glorify His name. That's what this hour is about. That's what Jesus says about this hour. This is the hour, it's the hour of culmination. It's the hour that if we started in the book of Genesis, the ground begins to get higher and higher and higher as it gets to this moment. This is the pinnacle. This is what every moment in human history, as it relates to God, is all about. <clears throat> the cross is about to tell us something about God. It's going to be the clearest moment about who God is to us that exists anywhere in the Word of God. So it is for Jesus, as this moment approaches, and you want to come meet me and find out about me, it's for Jesus to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as he considers this hour, there's a bit of a repulsion to it. So much so that the Son of God is considering, should I ask the Father... To save me from this hour. No, it's for this hour that I've come, Father. Glorify your name. Now, I just want to highlight something here. What was on Jesus' mind, because you've probably heard this, and it gets said in cute ways, and there's cute songs, and there is some degree of truth to it. <clears throat> I mean, y'all have heard it said that you were on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross. You, you've heard that. And, and there is a degree of truth in that. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He, he does love you. And he went to the cross for you. But, but there's something, and this is just important to know, there's something about us <clears throat> that doesn't want to 
necessarily be among many thoughts that he may have had. We want to be the thing he was thinking about. Matter of fact, he was, he was thinking about me by name. Okay, he's the son of God. He's capable of a lot of thoughts. Maybe he was. Maybe he was. <clears throat> it makes us feel good and it makes us feel appreciated. It makes us feel special. And we are all those things to God. But when I look at the biblical record here, what is on the mind of the Son of God here as he's about to approach the cross? It is the name of God being glorified. That's what's on his mind. Should he consider not going through with this hour? If he didn't, what it would mean for us all is a sentence of death that was unavoidable. But when he says, should I not do this? His thought is, no, I should do it. Father, glorify your name. That's what this hour is about. It's about God being glorified. Okay, now what does that mean? What, is the, what does it mean for God to glorify his name? Well, that word glorify, my definition for you there would be to put your name on display. God, put your name on display. Show it. Reveal all that there is to reveal about your name, right? Your name reveals who you are. That's why I named my children carefully. <clears throat> we, had, we had possibilities of naming our children. There was a favorite name. I won't say what it is in case you're here and your name happens to be that. <clears throat> but <clears throat> when I looked up the name, it meant ruler of elves. And I thought, no. Mm, uh. <laughs> it's a cute sounding name. It had good rhyme and reason to it and stuff, but... I'm not interested in any of my kids being ruler of elves. Because in the Bible, names mean something. So the name of God means something. God, put your name on display in the cross. I will not steer around that. I want your name, Father, to be on display. Right? The word glorifies, Greek word doxazo, means to render conspicuous and glorious the divine character and attributes of God as glorified by the Son. It means to magnify, extol, or praise, especially of glorifying God, ascribing honor to Him, acknowledging Him as to His being, His attributes, and His acts. So in this moment, there's this moment where the cross is going to let us see the glory of God in a way that's, Previously, we could not see it this way. And the Son of God says, that has to happen. It has to happen. Now, interesting here, when we describe God, how do we describe Him? Some of us do like, and we live in a culture that likes, the idea that God is loving. And the Bible says, God is love. Yes, He is loving. It would be absolutely wrong not to understand God without that. But my question is for us today is, is that all that God is? Is he, is he only loving? And is he even loving the way which we define love? That throws open a whole bunch of questions. Might he be more than love? Well, the Bible says he is love. Okay, I'll give you that. The Bible also says he is holy. More times than it says he's love. The Bible says he is righteous. I mean, he is a lot of things. And what the cross is about to do for us is it's going to act like a prism. You know what a prism is? A little, little 
cut in a certain fashioned, faceted piece of glass that when light, now scientists say white light, it's, it's truly not white, it's clear, right? You don't, you don't see light, you see the effect of it. But light, when it passes through a prism, light, which is pure energy, passes through a prism and the prism separates it into the light spectrum, right? All that makes up light. And so if I had a prism today and I shine a light through it, on the wall would, would come a host of rainbow colors. And you would see light. Right? That's what you're seeing. When you see a rainbow, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing light being refracted through little bitty droplets of water. The water's acting like glass. And it's showing you the light. So when we come to the cross... It's as though God is going to shine the light of his glory on the cross. And when it hits the cross, it's going to refract into several different revelations about God. And in this passage, we get, we get two of them kind of clumped together. Right? We get the grain of wheat. Now is the hour. And unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abides alone. So Jesus is explaining there's something about who he is that's going to be revealed in the cross that reveals a God who is willing to lay his life down. The character of God compels him to lay down his life as a sacrifice. But this hour is also, a little bit later, an hour of trembling for the Son of God. An hour in the Garden of Gethsemane and right here where my soul is troubled. Why is it troubled? Because, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. The Son of God is not only going to lay his life down as a sacrifice, he is going to put himself in the crosshairs of the judgment of God. Both of these things are going to happen at the cross. Why? Because the name of God is about to be refracted and go on display. You're going to see who God is, right? You want, you want to see an interesting... Turn back to Exodus chapter 33 for a moment. This passage has always, always been so informative and helpful for me. Moses, who relates to God and walks with God in a way that I can say <clears throat> nobody else does before him. And very few did after him. Moses saw things about God and he communed with God and God revealed things to him. That were just staggering. And even after all the miracles and all the powerful things that Moses was a part of, there came a point in his life where he had hung out with God, but there was something more about God that he wanted to see. Well, this is a lesson to us all. Right? I don't care how long you've been saved. You ought, you ought to be sounding like Moses in this passage right here. No matter what you've seen God do, no matter how much power you've experienced, you, you ought to be asking this question. Verse 18 Exodus 33. Moses said, speaking to the Lord, please show me your glory. This isn't an introductory moment for Moses. This is, this is after walking with God for quite a while that he is saying, God, show me your glory. It's like his appetite had been wet. He, he wanted to see more. Now, quite honestly, that question is at the heart of really everything about this book. Everything that God is doing is about glorifying his name. It's about putting his name on display. It is about showing his glory. But what, what on earth does that mean? Verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness 
Can you hold on to that word? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and I will make my glory pass by, and I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until, it, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. Right, can you get this picture here? Moses is asking for something that he doesn't quite understand, all that he's asking for. You're asking to see the... The glory of God. This word in the Hebrew, it's the word Chabad. And there's not a real good word for it in the English language. But, you know, scientifically it would be kind of the word that we might get for density. What makes something up of what it is. So he wants to see the nature of God. What do you like? God, show me that. And he's asking for something. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have the equipment to see it. God says, I'm going to put you in this crevice and I'm going, to, I'm going to cover you and I'm going to make my presence pass by. And just before my presence fades, I'm going to remove my hand and you're just going to catch it for a second. Because if I took my hand away too fast, you'd just evaporate, Moses. It'd be all over with for you. The splendor of who I am would be too much for you. But I'm just going to let you see a little taste. And you see the, the awesomeness of God. In this, did you realize that not a one of us has fully tasted God? I don't know what it's going to be like in eternity. I, I suppose eternity will be us taking Him in incrementally. We will see Him as He is, but I'm not even sure in glorified bodies whether we can consume all that in a moment. It may just be pleasure after pleasure as the glory of God unfolds for all eternity and we taste and see His goodness. Now, the next day, go back to the mountain here, in verse 5. <clears throat> the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Right? Moses is hidden in the rock here. And God is proclaiming the name of the Lord. Okay, he's proclaiming his name. He doesn't fly by and go, Joe. <laughs> Right, Because name in the Bible means something, like ruler of elves. Okay? It means something. So in this moment, God is, is proclaiming His name, which is revealing His character. Verse 6, The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is gone. Now, in that moment, it's as though God took the, the light of his glory and shot it through a prism. 
And Moses experienced and saw multifacets of God in that moment. He saw who God was. And there was one color that spoke of God's compassion. And another that spoke of God's loving kindness, His faithfulness. Another that spoke of His mercy. And another facet that spoke of His forgiveness. And another facet that spoke of His justice that never allows guilt to go unpunished. God, show me who you are. I just showed you who I was. Now, when we come to the cross, the exact same thing is going to happen. The light of God hits the cross and it refracts into these aspects of who God is. And quite honestly, God knowing that we needed a chalkboard on which he could write, he became a man. And through the activity of a man's life, he puts himself on display. There is no clearer image of the glory of God than the man, Christ. Much more clear than what Moses experienced here on the side of the mountain. God puts his glory in a container and displays it. And then he goes to the cross and brings this refractive moment and all the colors of God are seen. Right Now look in your outline there. Look at what goes on display in the cross. And there's more color than this. His love is on display in the cross, isn't it? You see the love of God in the cross? God so loved the world that he gave his son. Gave him in what way? He gave him to a sacrificial death. That's why Jesus is on earth. That's why I said a couple of weeks ago, the people who twist the message into Jesus into some social reformer misunderstand everything about him. He came to be a sacrifice. So when it says God so loved the world... That he gave his son, he was giving his son to the cross. And along the way, he was showing us some other things about him. So we see the love of God in the cross. We see his mercy in the cross. Right? We see an, an undeserved act of God taking place in the cross. Even when you read the neighborhood of what we've been reading in John, John chapter 11, John chapter 12, it's filled with unbelief. From a few weeks ago, we talked after the miracle of Lazarus. Some believe and a bunch don't believe. And the plot begins to kill him. And he shows up in Jerusalem amidst scheming of men who are going to mock him and put him up on a cross and ridicule him. This is, man doesn't deserve for the Son of God to go through this. But on display at the cross is mercy in its purest form. Because no one deserves this. But we're getting it anyway. His compassion. You know, it, it's, it's telling for some of us when we sort of develop this accusing mentality about God. Like, like God's not with me in this. God doesn't understand what I'm going through. Um, you, you understand it's mind-blowing that God ever came and put on human flesh? The incarnation is the most outrageous proclamation of the compassion of God. This is God becoming one of us. I and mean, this is where we're just not qualified to even have this conversation. It's kind of like, well, you know, that was nice of God. You know, <laughs> I can't fathom the distance that was traveled by the God of glory in heaven who's existed for all eternity to cage himself up in this and then come live amongst fallen humanity on the earth 
how much longer shall I put up with this generation? Oh, I think he could have said much worse. Right? Maybe get around some people, you're like, oh, this can't be over fast enough. Right? Can you imagine what God must feel like hanging out with us? But yet he comes and he embraces surely our griefs he bore. So, do, I, I, I'm not unsympathetic. I go through moments where I just, you know, I just wonder, God, what, what are you thinking right now in this? Why is this happening in my life or in somebody else's life? He bore our griefs. You're experiencing grief? You're experiencing the sorrow of sin? On the cross, when he went to the cross, he bore that grief, that sorrow. It wasn't like he bore some, you know, he went to a mall and bought a bag of grief and now this will work. I'll just put some grief on on the cross. Our griefs he bore. Our sorrows he bore. Our sins he bore on the cross. This is compassion. This is God not sitting in heaven trying to just root us on. He came and he put on himself our lives. You've shed tears, whatever it was that caused it. He bore that in himself on the cross. I see that color displayed. Of God's compassion. His wisdom. Oh, what wisdom once devised a plan. What a plan this is. Right? For some it's foolishness. To some a stumbling block. But to those who are the saved. It's the wisdom and power of God. It's God doing the only thing that would solve man's problem. And satisfy who he is at the same time. So this is the, that's the part of the equation we pull out. right? We get rid of who God is and we just say, well... God can save man through all kinds of means. Oh, oh, really? Not when you add in who God is. You do remember the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, slow to anger, but does not leave the guilty unpunished. Everyone who is guilty deserves punishment. And that's who God is. It's not a rule book that he plays by. This is my glory. I'm showing you who I am. By nature, I am an evil crusher. By nature, when sin gets around me, I'm like fire and gasoline. I will consume it and destroy it. By nature of who I am, that's what will happen. This is why it's miraculous that you and I draw breath for more than a moment on planet Earth. Because of who God is. If he did not do something about that aspect of who he is, none of us would have a moment. We would immediately fall under being consumed. His power is on display. He's going to overcome death through the cross and the resurrection. He's going to display. He's greater than our greatest fear. He's greater. He's going to overcome the ruler of this world, that spiritual force that's puppeteering men. And God, right here in this passage, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. His humility is on display. All right, Philippians talks about Jesus coming to earth in the form of a man, insulting enough to God. Not a bad deal for us, but insulting to God. And not just a man, but a servant. He doesn't come as a king to rule. He comes as a servant and takes the form of obedience even to the point of death, even to the humiliating death of a cross, which was designed 
to both kill you and shame you publicly. And this is the Son of God. What incredible humility gets refracted through the cross for us to see. His righteousness is on display at the cross with His justice. On display at the cross. Otherwise, the cross never happens. See, if God is not righteous, if we could just get God to lighten up a little bit on the righteousness and justice stuff, the cross never happens. It happens because of the righteousness of God and the justice of God. Look at this thought by the authors of Pierce for our transgressions. They say, God is concerned for justice. God saves sinners not, not by finding a loophole in his righteous law but by fulfilling its demands, by actually subjecting himself to his own demands. God has not dispensed with justice in overlooking our sins. He demonstrated it in the death of his son. How many of us would say the cross occurs because of the mercy of and forgiveness and love of God. How many of us would say that? How many of us would say the cross occurs because of the righteousness and justice of God? See, it's almost as though we look at the cross as being this incredible, merciful act, all for our benefit. I'm so kind of God. You understand, it is the righteousness of God that demands that it occur. It's not an option. See, if we do away with this aspect of God's character, you thrust open world religions into the scene. Because if God doesn't have to be righteous and just, the cross never needs to happen, and Jesus is just one of many options available to us in the world. It is this aspect of God's character that demands the cross, and it is this aspect that Jesus is referring to in this moment. Now... Is my soul troubled? Troubled. Why? Because he's about to face this aspect, this color of the glory of God in its righteous fury. And it's disturbing. Even to the Son of God, it's disturbing. Now now listen, it is... A travesty, and it is, I believe, also insulting for us to treat this aspect of God's character like the ugly stepchild. You you don't get to describe God like like he's your husband. Oh, have you met my husband? I mean, he's, he's a great man. I mean, just... He's a loving man. He's a great leader. I mean, sometimes he's a little bullheaded and hard to get along with, but, you know, and we kind of throw that qualifier in. You know, like he's got a lot of great things and then he's got this thing about him over here. I mean, he's got a little bit of a temper, but he's really okay in a lot of other ways. Have you met God? I mean, he's loving and compassionate and forgiving. I mean, he's a little bit of a hothead too, but, you know, I mean, he's really great. And, and we almost treat this aspect of God's glory. Like it's ugly. You do remember when God said, I'm going to hide you in the rock, Moses, and I'm going to let all of my goodness pass before you. 
It was the goodness of God that punishes evil and eliminates it and extinguishes it forever. Now listen, when we stand on the shorelines of heaven and look back at this thing, we're all going to go, Amen. When we see that sin has been extinguished forever and the dominion and the power that Satan had for a season has been swallowed up in the power of God no longer to be bound around our necks, we're going to all celebrate the God who destroys evil in an incredible way. But right now, that doesn't feel real comfortable. Revelation 14, book filled with revealing of God's glory, spelling it out, says something kind of interesting in this vein. Verse 6. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an, e- with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You understand, in the category of worship, the Bible includes the fear of God and the judgment of God. It's a cause for worshiping God. It's an aspect of who he is. It's not like we say, well, I'm not going to worship that part of God. I worship the love of God and the mercy of God. When God puts himself on display at the cross, we worship all of who God is. It's insulting to tell God, we appreciate this and this and this about you, but this over here, you must have been having a bad day when that happened in your life, huh? I mean, God, what were you thinking? Why are you that way, God? Whoa, little creature. (laughs) Just confess you're stupid. I mean, just do that. Excuse me, God, I'm just stupid. I don't get some things. I worship you for all that you are. That's the best I can come to, God. I don't fully get this. I'm telling you, at one point it's going to become very clear. But in this, now I'm the same person who wants to, you know, to fall in love with the idea that what was on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross was me. Okay, somehow in the infiniteness of God, I'm in there. What was on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross was the glory of God being seen. Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? Save me from your justice going on display? Save me from your righteousness filling the universe with color? Shall I pray, save me from that? No. The hour has come. And this world will be judged. And the glory of God will be seen in that. It wasn't just seen in the sacrificial willingness of the Son of God to lay his life down so that many could receive life. It was seen in the judgment of God as well. Now let me walk through a quick theology of God's judgment. Question for us. Will man face God in judgment? Is man going to stand before the presence of God? Probably so silent you could hear a pin drop. Waiting your turn. Stand before the presence of God 
and to be judged by him. Is that really going to happen? Or is that some crazy idea in religion somewhere that doesn't fit modern man's theology of God? Well, you know, interesting, in this week here, this past, this last week of Jesus' life, he is all over this subject. He's bringing it up here. The hour is an hour of sacrifice and it is an hour of judgment. So he's highlighting this. If you, know, if you look back and you can turn quickly with me to Matthew, the end of Matthew that highlights this week. Jesus, he teaches quite a bit on the theology of judgment. Matthew 25. I want to say this with clarity. Is really what I'm after. I want to say this with clarity because talking on this subject doesn't get heard. When was the last time you really studied the idea that God of the universe will stand as judge for all of humanity? That probably wasn't on the news last night, was it? It's not portrayed... It's not popularized by the people who spend their money to go on TV and talk about God. So what you get is, this is an obscure notion. Can I tell you, this is not an obscure notion. It's only obscure when you don't read the Bible. When you read the Bible, it's everywhere. It's disturbingly everywhere. And it's intended, quite honestly, to be disturbing. So if you walk out of here today disturbed, then then I have handled the Word of God right. If you walk out of here undisturbed, then your heart is either very, very hard or I didn't do a good job. Okay, so don't, don't anybody be looking like, you know, Keith's looking to say something that we like. I'm just looking to clarify what the Bible says, and it should disturb us. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And he runs through the life that was lived by these folks. And then in verse 41, he turns. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, do you realize this is going to happen? There is a day when men will be separated. Some will go to inherit the kingdom with all of its blessing, but others will will go into a place that is cursed. And the Son of God, in whom we say is revealed love, is going to reveal another color in that moment. His justice and His righteousness are going to be revealed. And forever they will be cut off from the presence of God, experiencing the judgment for their sin. The Bible teaches this all over the place. And this is so critical that all around this teaching, if you just hung out in chapter 25 of Matthew, you'd find these other dimensions. Right? Jesus speaks of judgment. He brings these thoughts of responsibility and accountability. On his way into Jerusalem one day, there's a fig tree standing there, and it's not bearing fruit. And Jesus, what does he do to it? Curses it. 
It's an aspect of God that curses things. The Son of God cursed the fig tree, kind of blew the minds of His disciples. Why? Because He expected there to be fruit. He looks on our lives and He expects there to be fruit. Listen, if you're a Christian, you got no Christian figs hanging off your life. You should not be comfortable. You should be very concerned. Because this God is God who expects there to be fruit. He tells the parable of the talents earlier in chapter 25. To one man is given a, an amount of money, a talent. Five talents are given to one. Two to another and one to another. And the, the master is going away. It's a picture of God giving something to man and going away and expecting when he returns, he will find something in man. The five takes his and goes and invests it. And he comes back and he's got ten now and he presents it to God. He's fruitful. The two goes off and does the same thing and comes back with four, presents it to the master when he comes back. He's fruitful. The one goes off and buries it, doesn't do anything with it, and he comes back and he presents it to God, and it's one. And what does God do to him? He curses him. He puts him out. Right? There's, there's responsibility before this God who expects fruitfulness and he will judge our lives there's urgency in this hour when jesus teaches on this the ten virgins right? the ten virgins illustrate to us a sense of alertness and readiness because judgment is coming it's coming and and well yeah but it's been a long time these things were said so long ago you know well, well that's what the ten virgins did they they became unprepared for the day when it would come five came that night to meet the bridegroom when he would come no one knew when he was going to come Five brought extra fuel. They were prepared in case he delayed. Five didn't. And their lamps went out. And after their lamps went out, then the bridegroom comes to gather the virgins. And only five are prepared. See, there's coming a day. A day when God will examine the fruitfulness of our lives. That day is coming. Because of who God is by His very nature. What about the Old Testament teaching on God's judgment? Look in Psalm 75. And I really, I gave you a mild dose of this, quite honestly. I probably should have made this a little scarier than these verses make it, quite honestly. Psalm 75, verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And when we read the rest of the Bible, the, the common image is what is in this cup is the wrath of God. It is God's furious opposition to sin and evil. Right? This, this, is, this is who God is. He is furiously opposed to sin and evil. And so, as we walk through life, this cup fills with God's righteous response to sin. And the wicked 
will drink every last drop, is what this passage says. Psalm 76, verse 7. But you, you are to be feared. Speaking of God, who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. See, God will stand as judge one day. Ecclesiastes makes this a little bit uncomfortable when it fine-tunes it in. and says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. For all these things. Ecclesiastes in the next chapter goes on in verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every deed. Can, can you just digest that for a moment? God will bring every deed into judgment. Everything you thought no one knew about. Every foolish word that you thought wasn't a big deal. Every evil deed God will bring into judgment. See, that there's a problem on our hands. Oh, well, that's that Old Testament stuff. Or how about the New Testament then? What does the New Testament teach us about God's judgment? Now, Acts chapter 17. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That man is Jesus. And what's interesting is... In John, towards the end of John chapter 12, I don't know, I'm, you can go back and read this. A statement is made where Jesus says, I've not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He says that also in, earlier in John. Now, do you know how many people have mishandled that passage? It's like, Keith, I don't know what you're talking about. And that may have been the God of the Old Testament, but Jesus, Jesus came with mercy. He came in love. He said he didn't come to judge the world. Well, why are you making it mean what you think it means? All he was simply saying was, I didn't come this time to judge the world. But when I come back the next time, I am. Well, I don't like that. I like the Jesus who's nice and merciful and feeding the multitudes. Forgiven the prostitute. You understand that when Jesus forgives the prostitute, it, it's not as though he's ignoring her sin. You do realize in the moment when Jesus forgives the prostitute, he knows he's going to drink her cup. The cup that her prostitution has been filling up every deed has been filling up a cup for her with the wrath of God stores up, and he says, your sins are forgiven. It's not as though God just waves sins away. Every deed gets judged. And when in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. But yet there's another judgment. What 
is he talking about in John 12? Now is the judgment of this world. When later he's going to come back and sit upon his throne and gather all the people. And he will be the judge. It's not as though it's, it's the mean God of the Old Testament. It's the Father. It's the mean Father. He's going to judge everybody. And Jesus is the nice guy. Do you realize Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible? You realize the Old Testament says absolutely, almost... Somebody correct me if I'm wrong on this. Nothing about hell. All the wrath of God gets, gets dealt out in visible, tangible, temporary ways. It's not until Jesus comes that he reveals that, oh, no, 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 the wrath of God is being stored up. You know, what's happening to man on earth right now is just the splash marks that come out of the edge of the cup onto a nation or onto a people. God is storing up his wrath. And over and over and over again, the Bible describes the day of God's wrath. The day of God's wrath. In your outline there, there's a passage in Ephesians 5 that, quite honestly, should be very sobering. Very sobering. Christians, Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of this coming day. This characteristic of God cannot be diminished, church. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Can you, can you hold on to what's in this list for a moment? Until we get to the end of it. Just hold on. This is the stuff that's being described. There's no pedophiles here. There's no rapists here. There's no murderers here. These are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. This is just dealing with the attitude of the church. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, the New Testament is waiting a day when this wrath is going to be poured out like it's in some big giant bowl in heaven. And it's going to be poured out. Now, quite honestly... It's poured out in two separate places. When Jesus in John chapter 12 says, now is the judgment of this world. He is referring to those who are going to be in Christ where he takes their sins to the cross with him. And in the moment on the cross, God takes the cup of my wrath and everyone who believes in him and he pours it out to the dregs, to the very bottom on his son. And in that moment, the world is being judged. It's not the son of God being judged. He had nothing to be judged. The world is being judged in that moment. Now, if you're not in Christ, your cup is still full. Let me tell you what great news. Christian, can I give you a little bit of encouraging news along the way here? <laughs> the great news for the Christian is your cup is now empty. Isn't that? 
because the judgment happened in that moment. But if you're not in Christ, your cup is still full, awaiting the day when God will judge. Now, this judgment will be furious and disturbing. It's the reason why the Son of God is in John chapter 12 saying, Now is my soul troubled. Why is he troubled? Because he's about to face the judge of the universe. Look at this helpful couple of thoughts here. J.C. Rowe says, This sentence implies a sudden, strong mental agony which came over our Lord, troubling, distressing, and harassing him. This is the same weight he begins to feel here that he will feel in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he contemplates the cross, and he's praying, and the intensity of that moment, I don't know, he's on his knees, and his head is filled with sweat, and blood begins to mingle with the sweat, and fall to the ground. The intensity of whatever he's experiencing. What is it? Well, he prays about what it is. Father, if it's possible, let this cup, that foaming cup of the Old Testament, the gathering of the wrath of God into a cup, God, if it's possible, let this pass. But nevertheless, not what I will, what you will be done. Father, glorify your name. In doing what? In pouring that wrath on me. It it was a God-glorifying thing. It revealed the righteousness of God. It's not something that we think lightly of or wish God weren't that way. He is this way. What was it from? Ryle says, not from the mere foresight of a painful death on the cross and the bodily suffering attending it. No, it was the weight of of the world's imputed sin laid upon our Lord's head, which pressed him downward. It was not his bodily suffering, either anticipated or felt, but our sins, which here at Gethsemane and at Calvary agonized and racked his soul. Listen, we are so humanized when we look at movies like The Passion of the Christ, uh, which, which was a movie, I could only watch that movie one time. It so affected me. And, and, Again, God using a human instrument, human chalkboard, to show the agony of his judgment as Jesus' physical body is racked. But quite honestly, I don't believe that's what he is doing in Gethsemane. I don't believe he's sweating drops of blood. I don't believe he's asking, Father, save me from this hour because he doesn't want the nails in his wrist or his back ripped open or the crowns on his head. It's the cup. It's the cup. It's not the physical thing. You and I look at that and we think, oh, how could the Son of God face nails in His wrist? No, no, no. Whatever was in that cup is disturbing. It's what makes us tremble before God. Bruce Milne says, in the terrible imagery of Gethsemane, Jesus must drink the cup the Father has given Him. In It is, rather, the cup of God's wrath. Hence, Jesus' horror. For in his death, he must not only face the reality of human finitude, the ending of his mission, the mockery of his enemies in whose eyes he will die a failure, and in addition, the appalling physical and mental sufferings of death by crucifixion. Beyond all that, he must also face 
the Father himself, the one to whom he has been inseparably bound for all eternity, not in the warm embrace of his everlasting love, but in the terror of his holy and righteous wrath. He must, in fact, become the object of divine rejection, the bearer of the implacable or the unsatisfiable antipathy to sin and evil of the ever-living God. He was troubled. Indeed, he had reason to be. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is an experience foreign to the Son of God who has been embraced in communion with the Father in love and now is facing the fury of God's opposition to sin and evil. Listen, this, this, is, this is lost or minimized in the realm and the world of the church to our detriment. It is the reason why we think little of the grace of God. It's the reason why some of us don't sing louder. It's the reason why we're not overwhelmed by God. It's the reason why we're casual about sin. Do you understand? In some strange way, tomorrow I make a decision about sinning. And I choose to go ahead and do it. Do you do understand? I fill the cup tomorrow that will be drunk by the Son of God and he will face God's fury. I won't, but he will. And in some strange way, the God who stands outside of time takes the cup of my cup that didn't begin till 1964 and it's been filling up and filling up and filling up and he's drained it on his son. How is it, Christians... How could we be so casual about sin? Knowing that we're running up a bar tab for the Son of God. So why? I don't know about all that. Don't pay attention to all that. Right. Right. I'm going to give us an opportunity this morning to do something weird. I'm going to give us an opportunity to get saved all over again this morning. Because... I think many of us don't really know what we were saved from. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Saved from What? You know, we lose that terminology, saved or saved. Not really, saved from what? You know, this really hit home for me. Jeff had asked me to speak on the subject of condemnation for the youth at the uh, youth camp a few weeks back. And he wanted me to preach out of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation. The word condemnation is the word for judgment in the Bible. So this concept is wrapped up in this. And, and we're being told, Christian, there's therefore now no condemnation. There is no judgment for you who are in Christ Jesus. And I think for many Christians, the response is sort of, Oh, really? Okay, if you say so. Didn't really know there was, but all right. It was hidden in the trunk. Got that too. Okay. It's almost as though that's not why we get saved. 
Most of us, this is partially okay, come to Christ because our life isn't working. We really want God to save us from a bad life. Save us from an unfulfilling life. Save us from an empty life. I don't have any meaning and purpose. Save me from an empty life. Save me from my past. Save me from all the things that have gone wrong in my life. Fix my life, God. That's why I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you to fix my life. Now listen, Jesus invited people on that basis. So this is not completely wrong. All who are hungry and thirsty for rights, come to me. Use you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. But when the Bible uses this idea of being saved... Right? When I get to Romans chapter 8, I, I, I am hearing something that began in Romans chapter 1, and it's, it's full of content. It's the good news of the gospel. It is a screaming moment. It's a moment for songs to be written because words can't contain it. It's a time to dance and celebrate and scream to God. There is therefore now no condemnation. Because in Romans chapter 1... Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation. Salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What does the gospel reveal? It reveals the righteousness of God. What went on display at the cross? The righteousness of God. God's refusal to overlook sin. Even so much so that his son will be put in the crosshairs of his justice refuses to overlook sin. That's what he told Moses he was. Now, sadly for us Christians, Romans 8.1 is read by us like somebody telling a bad joke. You ever get around with somebody who really can't tell jokes? They get all excited about some joke they've heard. And they come up to you and they tell it. And what they do is, this is, you know, if you want to take bad joke lessons, this is a bad joke lesson. You know, somebody tells you a joke and they tell you all these little details about, you know, Joe and Fred and they did and they build the whole thing up and it takes them forever. And then they get to the punchline. It's the punchline that makes you laugh. You're kind of wondering, should I laugh now? No? Yeah? No? And you get to the end and it's like, oh, that's... And the punchline makes you laugh, right? Now, if you're a bad joke teller, you just want to jump right to the punchline. So you minimize all the stuff leading up to it and you just said the punchline and then people look at you like, oh, that's sort of funny. <laughs> it's like, you're a bad joke teller. What makes the joke funny is all this setup. The punchline, without the previous setup, it loses its punch. And that's how we are with this. The gospel loses its punch of being good news because we're sort of like, hmm, there was a problem. Hmm, didn't know that. If I stood up before you today and shouted, pulled you into my face and said, guess what? You don't have cancer. If I did that to any one of you today, how would you respond to me? You'd probably look at me a little weird. Well, thanks, Keith, but I wasn't aware I did. (laughs) It really can't be that good of news to you. It's good news to you when you have been diagnosed and you begin to think on it. And how much do I have left? What's the treatment going to be like? And you talk to somebody who's been through it and you talk to a relative who went through it with a relative who died. And you start thinking how your family will do after you're gone. How will you face the treatments? And that gets down in you. 
And then the doctor turns to you and he grabs you and he looks you in the face and he says, guess what? You don't have cancer. Now, in that moment, you respond totally differently, don't you? Because you spent enough time in the bad news to truly appreciate the good news. How many of you guys have ever watched or read the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings? Epic book, epic movie. Climactic scene. Sam and Frodo finally find their way into Mount Doom with the ring. And the ring falls into the river of fire and it's destroyed. Now, in that moment, if you've been into the movie or you've read the book, something comes over you in that moment, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I mean, it's, you're eight hours later. This thing is huge. And finally, I mean, just this whole moment, are they going to make it? Is it, you know, if they don't, oh, the mission is if they fail, ah, and they finally get there. Oh, man. All right, now that's the punchline. Now suppose, remember the opening scene is Gandalf, the old gray-beard Gandalf, riding into the Shire. Now suppose in the opening scene, Gandalf wants to just cut the movie short. And he shows up in the Shire and he calls a town meeting. He says, everybody come together. Guess what? The ring is gone! It's been destroyed! (laughs) What's he talking about? (laughs) That's nice, Gandalf, I think. Gandalf discovers the ring in the Shire and he begins to get a little bit concerned. Frodo has no idea what this ring is about. He is clueless. And Gandalf educates him. You should be concerned. But he doesn't really know what that means still. And so when he runs off, Frodo takes the ring, follows Gandalf's instruction, leaves town to go hide, and he runs into a guy named Aragorn. Aragorn understands the ring. And he sees Frodo. And Frodo happens to mysteriously fall over and the ring flies up in the air and Aragorn knows he has it. And the ring falls and he disappears and there's this big scene there. As soon as he becomes visible again, Aragorn grabs him and throws him into this room. Now, Frodo doesn't know who Aragorn is. And Aragorn asks him a question. He says, Frodo, are you frightened? Frodo pauses for a moment. He says, yes. And Aragorn answers, not nearly as frightened as you ought to be. I know what hunts you. I watched some people answer on a video the other day, Michael Jackson's death, and they were being asked about their death, and they were being asked whether they were afraid to die. Because the Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once, and then the judgment. Can, Can I just tell you? If you don't know Christ, the judgment will be worse than the death. Are you afraid to die? But most people answered honestly, they would probably say, uh, yeah. I'd have to tell you this, not nearly as frightened as you ought to be. You should be terrified to face God. Terrified. The Bible actually says that. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because in that moment, you will enter into a judgment with that God. And that judgment will be what Jesus was praying about. Should I ask 
my way around this. The Son of God was troubled by this moment. See, when we get to Romans chapter 8 and the gospel is good news, it's good news because right after we heard about the gospel, we hear in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen, there is coming a day of incredible wrath from God in a day of great judgment. Now, let me just conclude this morning. Eric can come back up here. This is a dilemma. This is why the cross is so wise. Because God is a righteous judge who will consume and destroy all evil and sin. That's who God is. You can't make him something different than that. You can't decide, that doesn't appeal to me. That doesn't matter. When the invisible God gets portrayed through the cross and his light spectrum goes on display, what Jesus is facing is both his love for humanity and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, but also the fury and judgment of God. Listen, this morning, there may be some here who, if you, you don't know Christ, well, how do I know if I know Christ? You got any figs on your tree? Listen, it's not if you got enough figs. Oh, well, I finally got a hundred, so I'm, Jesus said, come on in. Got a hundred figs now. No, 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 no. That's not the basis for salvation. It simply is the mercy of God. It's receiving Christ by faith. It's receiving what he did on your behalf by faith. But if you think you've done that, and you're looking at your tree, and you've got no figs on your tree, you need to reconsider. Because I, I, I would be the worst pastor you could ever come across. If I'm telling any of you here who can't seem to find figs on your tree, be at peace. God loves you. He forgives sin. Remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree that had no fruit on it. If you're a Christian, you can see it growing in your life. You're not perfect. And you're dealing with issues. And you still have sin to overcome. But you see God on display in your life. If you are here today and that doesn't describe you, you should be very frightened. You will face God, not in warm embrace. He will not be the prodigal father who runs down the road to greet you. He will face you as your judge. And the cup that you have been contributing to all of your life, God will begin to pour it out. And it will take forever for it to be consumed. What Christ did in a moment because he was God, you will experience forever away from God. That's what God says. But here's the good news. In this passage where the grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies is the one who now says, now, now is the world judged. This morning, you want your cup emptied? Don't wait and empty it later. And there's urgency here. The Bible's urgent about appealing to us when it comes to judgment. You want your cup drained. 
this morning. Give your life to Christ. Yield your life to Him. Give Him possession of it. Let Him take the whole thing. See, He will take all of it. He'll take your future and He'll take your past. He'll take all your good things and your talents and abilities and He'll take all your sin and He'll drain that cup for you till it's empty so that you can stand and say, there is now no condemnation for me. None. There's nothing left in this cup. It's empty. Let's stand up together. There may be some here who need to pause and consider this for a moment. Lord Jesus, you contemplated this cup and you were troubled. Oh God, don't rescue us from trouble this morning. Don't. Don't rescue us from being troubled by this. Lest we fail to give our cup to you and face the awful day when we will drink it ourselves. Lord, I pray for every person here who's not put their faith and their hope in you and what you did on the cross to forgive them by paying for their sins, to remove the day of judgment by receiving God's judgment in our place. God, is anybody here this morning who's never done that this morning, right now, right now, God, give hearts over to doing this. God, right now, thrust open the doorways of heaven. God, right now, invite and encourage and help those who are here this morning to flee from a day of wrath that is to come and to receive the God who is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who does forgive, whose punishment will be averted onto the Son of God for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. If you're here today, you've not done that. I want to ask you to do it right now. Do it right now. Tell God, God, save me. God, take my sins. You, here, drink my cup for me. Come into my life with your forgiveness and the newness of life. I, I, I want you to be my Lord. I want to follow you every day for the rest of my life, God. I want to know you. I want to be like Moses asking, God, show me some more about you. Show me some more about you. God, I want to know you deeply. I believe there's some of you here this morning. You came to Christ to be saved. This wasn't at the top of your list. Probably for many, many of us, it wasn't at the top of your list. When God sent His Son into broken humanity, He did come to touch what's broken about you. But when you read the Bible, the day God has most in mind, and what is on His mind, is that He will one day pour out His judgment on humanity. God was looking to save you from that. This morning, can, can you look away from... God, save me from my brokenness. 
And look upon this. God, save me from your judgment. Your righteous judgment. In some ways, you might get saved all over again, so to speak. I don't believe you have to understand all this to be saved. But when you read the Bible, this is what God was saving you from, ultimately. That's such good news. You will never... You will never know the smell of the fire of God. You'll never know it. It will always be a stranger to you. When the furious fire of God consumes the wicked, you will never know what that smells like. You will never know what it was that Jesus was troubled over. You will never know that. It's the reason why you have confidence before God. The judgment's been lifted from your life because there's not a drop left that the Son of God didn't take for you. Can you get saved all over again this morning? Because I know many of us, we come to the kingdom of God because we're busted up. And we got a need. We want God to save us from the pain of our own decisions. That's good. God, thank you that you do that too. But this morning, can you get clearly in your mind, God's saving you from his judgment. You got saved. You got saved from God. You got saved to God. Lord, let the church, let the church, God, know this truth. God, it's inescapable. It's everywhere in your word. God, it gives us a totally different perspective. Lord, if next week... You sewing me back together doesn't look like what I thought or hoped it would be. God, I'm not going to ask for a refund and I don't want my money back. Because you saved me from a whole lot more than my feeble little life or the way things were going or the brokenness of my past. You saved me from a day that would have been disturbingly furious to give me a day that will be incredibly glorious. God, keep that near to my heart that I may know what I've been saved from and live every day grateful and celebrating and rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Have a great, awesome week this week.